Good Shepherd Parish, it is so good to be with you. Thanks again for the wonderful meal that we shared and the fellowship and the chance to, to get to know you and to share a little bit about our testimony and our lives. Jody and I had a wonderful night's sleep in the hotel you provided. Um, the only other time I've been to, to Auburn, Alabama, I've never been to Opelika before. And I learned to pronounce it Opelika and not Opelika, so I, I appreciate that as well. <laughs> the only other time I was here was when we were in our 20s. We stayed with friends that were in graduate school at Auburn, and they had three cats that, I kid you not, attacked us all night long. <laughs> my, my clue was the fact that they gave us a squirt bottle, a water bottle, and they said, you're going to need this, you know, so uh, no, no attacking cats last night. We slept well and, and uh, are peaceful, and it's good to be with you, so... Let me again just say uh, how excited I am that you are led by such a fine priest of the church in Ben Jeffries. And I know he's doing a wonderful job of shepherding you as an under-shepherd for Christ in this place. And Carrie has helped me, and your deacon, Leakin, as I'm learning to say, and his wonderful wife as well. So what a blessing to be with you guys and to, and to see how you're being cared for in this place. So it's my pleasure to open up God's word to you this morning. For a couple of moments. You may be aware that there's a, a revival going on the campus of Asbury College and the, the graduate school there that's going on. Um, this is in some ways mindful to me of the revival that's taking, that took place back in the 1960s and 70s in East Africa. It's now known as the East African Revival. Have any of you heard of such revival? Well, let me say a little bit about it since it's not since here. It, it actually, in some ways, is the reason why the African Anglican Church was in a position to receive us as refugees from the Episcopal Church when, we, when many of us left years ago. Because of this revival that had gone on within East Africa, where, where young men and young women began to feel such the power of the Holy Spirit that they began to gather in small groups and they began to confess their sins one to another that they might be strengthened, and that they might serve the Lord in their day. And out of that East African revival came a whole generation of lay and clergy leaders for the church in East Africa. Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania. Those folks became heroes to us in our time of trial in the 1990s and 2000s. They refer to themselves as walking in the light. And how you walked in the light was through these small groups of confessing one to another. I would suggest to you that if you were to take seriously St. Paul's admonition in, in, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 5 with regard to immorality, that you would be helped by having another brother or sister to confess your sins one to another, that you might be strengthened in the day. In a lot of ways, the scriptures that were given, and particularly the gospel passage this morning, focuses on this, the sense of light. And I can't help but see that, that a few of you are really in the light this morning. <laughs> so that, that will be apparent. I don't know if in, in my parish in Gainesville, the light would travel across the congregation. So I don't know if it, will it move throughout the service, so, or, or will you always be in the light? So. Well, walk in the light, dear sisters. <laughs> That's my admonition, not only to you, but to all of us. You think about it. Um, in, in 1 Samuel 16, 
Samuel is looking at the outer side. He doesn't have, if you will, spiritual eyes to see the one that God is choosing to be the king of Israel and David. St. Paul tells the Ephesians that they are to walk in the walk in love, but then goes on to say that they're to walk in the light. In chapter 8 of John's Gospel, Jesus has said these words, I am the light of the world. This is verse 12. Those who believe in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I think it's great that, that Jesus says that in chapter 8. And then chapter 9, which is a really long chapter, goes into a physical demonstration of how those who are in darkness are walking in light. I don't know if you can identify with this blind man. We're told he's been born blind. That's really important because in the first century mind, that the, the rabbis understood that there was a difference between a person who became blind later in life and somebody who was born blind. And it was a far greater task to try to bring sight to somebody who had blindness from birth. As a matter of fact, it may not have even been, ever been, been done before to bring healing to that. Whereas somebody that maybe lost sight later on in life might have it restored. This blind man's story, though, is for each of us. We should all find our identification in it. The disciples want to know, what's the source of this blindness? Did his, did his parents sin? Or did he sin? In other words, they wanted to, to localize it. And sadly, that's often the time. We spend all of our time figuring out, trying to figure out who's responsible, who's to blame. Jesus rather reverses it and says it's not about source, but rather about purpose. God can use all the suffering in our lives. My former professor, New Testament professor at Trinity Seminary, Rod Whitaker wrote these words. God does not allow anything to enter our lives that is not able to glorify Him by drawing us into deeper intimacy with Him and revealing His glory. Isn't that great? God does not allow anything in our lives that will not, He is not able to, is not able to glorify Him by drawing us into deeper intimacy and reveal his glory. Jesus says, it's not his sin or his parents' sin, but in order that God might be glorified, and truly God is glorified through what happens in this blind man's life. Jesus extends love and mercy to this man. Now, it might not seem like it, because I don't know about you, but I'm not super excited about somebody taking spittle and mixing it with mud and putting on my eyes. You know, there, it reminds me of uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, where, where Naaman the Syrian comes with leprosy, and, and he wants to be healed by the prophet Elisha, and Elisha says, go dip yourself in the, in the Jordan River. He's like, that's a disgusting creek. You know, we have beautiful rivers back where I come from. Why am I asked to do this thing? And his servant says, look, if he asks you to do something great, you can do it. If he wants you to go take a bath in a dirty river, go do it, right? Don't complain about it. And in the same way, the blind man allows Jesus to take this spittle and mud and place it upon his eyes. And then he notice that he sends him off. There's a, an obedient step. If, 
when we are presented with the grace and mercy of God, there's always that opportunity for us to respond. We are active participants in our own spiritual journey with the Lord. He tells him to go and wash off. Now remember, he's still blind. So once again, for the last time, this blind man has to stumble or ask for help. Somebody has to take him to the, to the pool that he can be cleansed from his blindness. He's taken there. He goes. He washes. And in fact, he receives his sight. There is a lot more going on in this passage though, than simply just simply than just the physical blindness being healed. As great a miracle as that. First of all, you need to know that the prophetic words of the Old Testament said that when Messiah comes, he would one of the things that he would do is he would grant sight to the blind. So there's a high stake here. Because Jesus has just demonstrated in power that in fact he is the Messiah, that he is God's chosen one, come. But of course, with that comes the controversy with the religious leaders. They are unsettled. They begin to question. And we even find out that they're divided. Some say that there's no way Jesus can be the Messiah, and yet there are also others within the Pharisees group that say, but, but look at what he's done. and How could God do such a work through a sinful man? And so there's division among them. And they begin to interview and inquire, inquisit this blind man, his friends and family, his parents, which we had to skip over in the lecture today, but, but the parents get interviewed, and all of this meant to try to understand what's going on. At the same time, the blind man undergoes a spiritual journey that results not only in his physical sight, but in spiritual sight. He comes to understand exactly who Jesus is. That, in fact, he is the light of the world. And he's come to bring light to those who are in darkness. And again, in your mind should be all the incarnation narratives, you know, to those people, that, you know, speaking of the, the, the Gentiles living, those people living in darkness, a light has come, right? And, and, and there's this whole uh, series of, of imagery about light in, in, the, the, in all of our incarnation uh, narratives that we say around Christmas time. There's a little bit of humor here, too, isn't there? I mean, the man says, look, all I know is that I once was blind, but now I see. Reminds me of the great hymn of the church, Amazing Grace. Surely, John Newton must have been thinking about this passage when he, he wrote those words in the hymn. He, they come back to him, they say, we want you to tell us again how this man healed you hoping to pick apart the story. If they can't disprove the miracle, then at least they can disprove that Jesus is the means for this miracle. The man says, look, I've told you already all this stuff. Do you want to become his, his disciples? Is that the reason why you're asking? And I, I, again, there's a little bit of humor here because the, he, the, the blind man begins to instruct the Pharisees as to what's going on. Over the course of chapter 9 in John's Gospel, this blind man, formerly physically blind man, gains spiritual sight. And there's this progression of who Jesus is. 
At first, it's just Jesus is this man that came and put mud and, and, and slava on my, on my eyes, and I could see. That's all I know. Then the man declares that Jesus is a prophet. Then he's asked if Jesus is a sinner. He says, I don't know if he was a sinner. I just know that I was blind, and now I can see. And then later on, it goes on, and, and over and over again. And then at the end, as he gets questioned again, he, he begins to make this theological statement about Jesus. Well, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, and that God has listened to this man. And so surely this man has come from God because he's done the work of God. And, and you're thinking, why is this formerly blind man having to become the instructor, the rabbi, if you will, the teacher, to these who are supposed to be the religious leaders. And yet, that is what happened. And then at the end, Jesus finds the man. What a marvelous moment that is. He begins to, he begins to move towards faith, towards true understanding it's so important to me that, I, that I, I, I can see in this blind man, made to see, given spiritual eyes, that the requirement is not a pre-knowledge or a work, but simply just the acknowledgement of what he knows and what he doesn't know. He admits what he doesn't know. And there's a humility about him and an openness to God that allows him to continue to learn and grow as, as Jesus continues to, to reveal himself to him over the course of the time. Meanwhile, the religious leaders move further and further into spiritual blindness. And Jesus proclaims that judgment in, doesn't he? That they who claim to see are in fact blind, while this man who was blind now is not only received physical sight, but also spiritual sight. They deny the miracle. They condemn Jesus for his work on the Sabbath. They label Jesus a sinner. And they kick him out. That is, they kick out the blind man. He's cast out from the community. He can no longer attend the synagogue. Early in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, light has come, but the judgment of God is that people love darkness. When Paul talks about covetousness in Ephesians chapter 5, he relates it to idolatry. And I think that's so helpful for us because there is this, this, there's this spiritual blindness that causes us to, to, to want the things that God has not given us. And to somehow think that that God somehow is withholding from us. When we, when we move into idolatry, it's because we really, when we're, when we're coveting somebody else's life, we really want something that God hasn't given us. And we say, Lord, what you've given us is not good enough. I want that. I want that person's house or his, or his wife or his, his job or his, his good fortune or whatever it is. And so, in a, in a sense, and, and Paul links those two things, that, that coveting someone else's things is in the same manner as idolatry. It's really seeking out that which God has not given us. And it's moving further and further into spiritual blindness. And Paul calls the Ephesians out of spiritual blindness to walk in light, to, to, to walk in a contentment, to seek to find out what pleases the Lord and to be content in where they are. And the result of the blind man's obedience is that he grows in knowledge and wisdom, whereas the Pharisees, the religious leaders, 
move further and further into darkness. Jesus at the end makes clear that there will come a day. There's, it's appointed once for a man to die, and then, to come, and then comes the judgment. And sadly, those that reject Jesus will move further and further into spiritual blindness, but not, not this formerly blind man. Jesus finds him. That may be one of my favorite new scriptures in, this, in the whole Bible. He's cast out by the religious leaders. No longer can he go to the synagogue, but he's, but he's sought out by Jesus. And Jesus now reveals himself to be the Son of God. And we're told that the blind man believes and worships Jesus. He has come into a living faith in Christ because of his continual willingness to admit what he doesn't know and to stay open and humble before God. And so becomes the lesson for us as the church. As we walk through the season of Lent, Will we be like the formerly blind man, continuing to be open before God, humble, seeking to understand the light of the world in Christ Jesus our Lord? We too, who know Christ, have been called into this, this family that he has given us, this community of Jesus that he's built around himself. And to be with him. Remember, he tells the disciples, we must be about the work that my Father has given us. We too are to call people out of darkness into light. We can rest assured that when we don't have all the theological answers, we can say, this is what I know. This is the blindness that I had. And this is how the Lord has revealed himself to me. In this season of Lent, let us continue to ask the Lord to reveal places of spiritual blindness in our own lives. Places where we're not humble, where we're not teachable. Let us continue to trust the Lord that whatever suffering we must endure, He has purpose. He can use it to build intimacy with us in glory to his name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.